Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day, this new year. We thank you, God, that your mercies are new every morning. Father, in Isaiah 43, 19, your word says, See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Lord, help us to not only perceive it, but also believe it. You are the great I am. Start something new within us as a body and individually. Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness so that your word says, not maybe, but we will be filled. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your presence so that we will experience you in fullness and know that Jehovah Jireh, you God, you are enough. You are enough. So I am enough. Help us to be sold out for you, Jesus. Help us to come expectant that you are doing a new thing. Free us from distractions to be present in your presence. Lord, help us to partner with you in prayer and petitions to be your kingdom-minded disciples, to bring heaven to earth. We thank you, Father, in advance for meeting with us here. Be with Tim as he brings forth the word. May it penetrate into our hearts, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Meredith and worship team, for leading us. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. That's um, up through the fifth grade. They can make their way to the lobby, greet their teachers there, and parents, you can pick them up upstairs at the end of the service. Um, if you haven't checked your kids in already, you, you do need to do that still. Um, thank you for joining us for worship. Um, there's a, just, it's, a, it's a wonderful season to start out a new year and to hear beyond the second week of the year and gather in worship and say, with new energy, with the realm of possibilities open, we are committing our year to the Lord Jesus and worshiping the Lord Jesus together as a gathered assembly this year. Um, we have lots of stuff going on in the life of the church in this season. We have a, a men's ministry breakfast on Saturday. We have men's discipleship groups that started this past week with Every Man a Warrior that are still open. If you, if, if you want to join and you missed the first week, you can still do that. You can sign up for that on the Church Center app. We have uh, women's quad groups that um, sign-ups are open for, and we're about to watch a testimony video for that in a minute. Uh, we have family ice skating uh, coming up next Sunday, where um, you'll get some more information on that via email, and from uh, Rika communicating with kids and AJ communicating with youth and their families, um, but we're going up to, to Chattanooga to have an ice skating night. You don't have to have kids or youth to participate. 
but we'll send out the information on that. We'd love to have you join us for that um, Sunday afternoon into the evening of, of next week. Um, but I do want to share one thing um, from this bulletin. Um, we intentionally keep this brief and we don't want to overwhelm you with too much information on something like this. And so we want you to remember that there's so much more information available via uh, signing up for the weekly newsletter that, um, that comes via email. But, but you can see there's three big announcements on here relating to things I've already stated. And on the back, I want to draw your attention to the financials. Um, because it is this, the second week of the year, I, I have the opportunity to speak a little bit about this. We don't always draw attention to this, but the information is always there for you every week. What is our church's annual budget? How, are, how is giving going at this point? But now is the appropriate time to tell you that um, as we told you throughout multiple times during 2023, we had points where we had to come to you and say we're a little bit behind on budget, but we're praying, we're trusting God, and we're asking you to to give generously and faithfully your, your tithes and offerings to the work of the Lord. And now I get to tell you that at the end of, of 2023, our giving did exceed our budget. And that's a beautiful thing. So, yes, let's... I'm saying it in worship and praise to God to say we, we met our budget for 2023. The elders were able to then agree on... Um, on increasing the budget a little bit. That's what that number is. So if you, if you are one of those that looks closely every week, you'll see that last week we had our 2023 numbers on there and our annual budget was 645. And this week we have an annual budget number of 670 on there showing that, that we made the decision to, to continue to trust in God's continued faithfulness and increase the budget a little bit and hope for more opportunities for God to bless our church and grow our church in the year ahead. But I wanted to start out the year with that announcement and also lead us in prayer together um, of thanksgiving to God for how he provides and ask him to continue to give us in leadership, staff, elders, and, and, and all volunteer leaders wisdom in how we use kingdom resources, how we bring honor and glory to God and make disciples in our nation and in our community um, around us especially. Father, we thank you. We praise you for your faithfulness. You have been so good to us and to this uh, assembly of your body of believers for so many years. And we close the books on 2023 again in a spirit of gratitude, recognizing that um, you have made a way for us to um, do the ministry we set out to do and even more. And Father, we pray that in 2024, you give us more and more opportunities for expanded ministry. Father, show us what more you have for us to do for your glory in the year ahead. We so want to be faithful to you. We so want to see people who do not know you turn towards you. And so, Father, um, bless us this year and show us how we can walk as faithful stewards to, to use the resources you entrust us. God, I pray for those those 13 missionary um, units that we uh, sponsor all over the world. I pray for their faithfulness and new opportunities for ministry to them. God, I pray that you'll bless them and open up doors. God, I pray for all the, the ministries we have here, for our children's ministry that is growing, our youth ministry that is growing, men's and women's ministries that are growing. Father, I pray that you would bless those ministries. I pray you would bless our life groups and our Sunday school classes. I pray that people in this community would know that we are a church that loves you and loves them. 
And so, Father, may we love our community well. And Father, I pray specifically that this year we would see people come to meet you and join you in relationship for the first time through the ministry of this church. Father, make it be so. And Father, show us how to walk in faithfulness to just follow along with what you want to do in us, to change us, and to bring people into your kingdom in our community and all around the world. And God, we do pray for your blessing over this service, that you would speak through your word, and that God, you would direct each of us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen. I told you we have an announcement or a, a testimony video to show you about women's quad groups, so we're gonna show that now. The quad group was just great because we got to meet new friends and then we got to know longtime friends better. We had a lot of fun. There was a lot of laughs, a lot of wisdom, a lot of sharing. We had a new person coming in for Thanksgiving and I was kind of unsure how we would meet them. And then after Thanksgiving, one of the girls said, how did that go? And I thought that was so nice that she cared about the new friend that was going to come in for Thanksgiving. And we talked about some deep questions. We talked about light questions. We were sitting at a restaurant one day at downtown and saw a raccoon go up, looked out the door and a raccoon went up the street. That was real nice. And everybody talked about their Christmas uh, traditions and it was just fun. And then one thing I learned, and I bet none of y'all knew this, that Jason and Emily got engaged in Switzerland. Now, Jason hadn't always been a guy with four kids. I mean, how cool is that to get engaged in Switzerland and not Dayton, Tennessee or some little town in Tennessee, but Switzerland. Y'all have to find out the story about that from them. I want each of y'all to really think about signing up. I had such a good time and you'll get a lot out of it. And I'm eager to see who my new group is and have fun with them and get to know them better. Yeah, if you want to sign up for that, and I hope that you will, uh, the way quad groups work is uh, women of different age groups get put into groups of four, and then they ha are given some questions to discuss, they have meals together, they have coffee, whatever together, they meet up regularly for a period of time, and all that information is on the Church Center app. And if you go to your app store, go search for Church Center, and then it will find your location in Dalton, Georgia, and you'll see Fellowship Bible Church, you can sign up that way. If you have any problems with that, talk to one of our staff members. We do have some paper signups at the back black table, I believe, as well. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll continue in our journey to understand who Jesus is as presented in this incredible book um, called the Hebrews. Um, in 1804, William Clark set out on this incredible journey that we've all heard about. And, and what happens is, as he starts, William Clark joins with 30 people to go into Missouri, where he meets up with his partner, Meriwether Lewis, and 10 other people. And then for the next months and years, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark go on this incredible exploration 
of the American West. They start out with 40 associates. They lose some along the way. They make contact with over a dozen indigenous tribes for the first time. And the reason is that in 1803, the year before the expedition sets out, uh, Thomas Jefferson negotiated the purchase of Louisiana, the Louisiana Purchase, which included far more than what we know as Louisiana today, but essentially large sections of the American West. Some of what we know as the American West, the Southwest region, was still owned by Spain at the time. But William Clark, Meriwether Lewis, 40 of their associates set out as pioneers, as trailblazers, to go and explore, is there a waterway that goes Atlantic to Pacific? They knew there was this thing out there, this huge body of water on the other side of this huge landmass that was known as North America, of which the United States of America had just purchased a significantly larger portion. But here's the thing that happens. We, here we are, over 200 years later, and for us to travel across the Mississippi River into Missouri is no big deal. Because 200 years later, we live in, after a couple hundred years of development post William Clark and Meriwether Lewis. So we've heard of the Lewis and Clark expedition. We've been to, maybe some of us have been to St. Louis and seen the arch. And maybe you've seen or you've studied some of the history of these guys and, and those that went with them, those that helped them along the way. But it's easy for us to forget that without somebody to pioneer, somebody to to trailblaze, somebody to first go and seek out the land and first discover the waterways and map the topography and figure out what is the best road to, to go from one place to another without there being any roads that exist, but actually find their way through the Rocky Mountains to get all the way out to the Pacific Ocean, to take the time over months and years to get there and come back, report on it. The number of scientific, um, uh, the, the, the amount of scientific research that started through these guys that was not part of the original plan, but just the number of species, flora, fauna, that, that were discovered along the way, and they came back and they reported, here are these things that we saw. There are animals out there, there are plants out there that don't exist in the, in the eastern states. And that you wouldn't believe the mountains, the Appalachians are nothing compared to these mountains that we saw out there. The rivers, the ocean, all that we saw. And so there's no American West without an expedition out there. There's no gold rush. There's no our vacations to the national parks out west. We don't know about the Rocky Mountains and Yellowstone. We don't know about the Pacific Ocean there's no family vacations out west for these road trips to see all this beautiful country without first somebody going and exploring. And there's a beautiful thing when you understand the history that before we could, you know, my family in 2021, we took a road trip, we took the southwestern route into what was Spain in the early 1800s, but we went through Texas and we went New Mexico and Arizona and out to California. We got to see a couple of national parks. We got to see the Pacific Oceans. It was fun. It was meaningful. And so many people have found homes 
in the American West, have found great family memories in the American West, all because that land was added into the United States, explored, pioneered, and developed. You don't appreciate the beauty of the country unless somebody goes and first makes a way for people to easily travel out there. What does all this have to do with the book of Hebrews and the, book, and the person of Jesus? So the book of Hebrews presents Jesus as greater. That's the whole theme. We've spent a few weeks talking about how Jesus is greater than the angels. We've spent time reflecting on how Jesus is greater than us. That's not a hard one. But for the Hebrews, apparently it was complicated to them to conceive of Jesus, who was a man, that he could still be higher than the angels, who were spiritual beings and and so fascinating to them. But here in this passage, we come to this idea of Jesus, who is the perfect Son of God, is in some way, at the beginning of this passage, made perfect. And it's an incredible theological question when you think about it. Like, wait a second. So, according to Hebrews 2.10, Jesus was made perfect through suffering as a man. What about before the incarnation? What about before Christmas? Before Jesus was born and lived and died, was he then imperfect? Well, that's our subject for today. How is Jesus perfect? In what ways is Jesus perfect? And the question that human beings always care about, and you can say it's not true, but when you think about it and you reflect truly, the question that that we all are most interested in when we open the Bible, what does it have to do with me? Like we like to think that we love to know all about Jesus and we love to to just be have our minds blown. Like that's the spiritual answer, right? Tell me who God is. Tell me who Jesus is. I want to know all the stuff. But at the end of the day, we're fallen human beings. We, we, we bend towards ourselves and self-interest. And so then the question always eventually comes up. What does all that stuff have to do with me? And that's what this passage tells us. So we're going to unpack this passage and see that the perfect son became the perfect savior and the perfect high priest so that he could achieve radical transformation for us. Three points for today. Our perfect Savior, our radical transformation, and our perfect High Priest in the nine verses of Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. I'm going to read the whole passage for us, and then we'll unpack it in those three sections. Verse 10 of Hebrews 2. For it is fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's that tough verse. And then on to verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now down to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power 
of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we'll start with this perfect question. In what sense was Jesus not perfect before the events described in verse 10? It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's important to recognize that before Jesus was a savior, he was the son. Now, as the Son, as the eternal Son that was uncreated, that was eternally existent with God the Father and God the Spirit before time began, Jesus always existed and was always perfect as God and as the Son. Jesus was not always the Savior. Though he was always preparing to be the Savior, the saving had not yet happened yet. That is what the author of Hebrews is communicating here. Jesus was not imperfect before he was the Savior, but he could not be called the Savior until he actually saved somebody. And if we look at how Jesus is the founder of salvation that was perfected through suffering, we have a couple words that we need to understand and define. The first is founder. Let me tell you something about how Bible translation works. Um, the, the English Standard Version is the version that I'm using right now. Okay? This is the version I preach from every Sunday. It's a, it's a good version. It's not the only good version. It's not, I don't necessarily think it's even the best version. I think it's one of the best versions that are hard to distinguish which one is actually best. Okay? You don't have to use the ESV. It's what I use. If you follow along, know that's what I read from. But the ESV, as with many or any good translation, the way it works is you have a number of people that get together, and they translate different sections of the text straight from the original language. So there's all this research, all this process that goes into finding good Hebrew and Greek versions of the Old and New Testament, Old Testament in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek. And then these guys that, and, and women, men and women that are scholars, they get together and they work together on what is the best way to translate this phrase from this ancient language to a modern language, and it's a collaborative effort where sometimes there's multiple different options of how to say things, and sometimes there's multiple different good options of how to say things. But the, the way they land on certain terms is through context. Okay, we could translate this word three different ways, so let's find the best, smoothest way to do it. Consistency with other passages. There's other passages that use this same word in a slightly different context. So maybe this word makes sense as translating it this way in this passage, this way in another passage, and sometimes that happens. But then there's also the state of the English reader is a part of it. What is the English reader going to understand? What words are out of use in the English language that we need to move away from in our translation because more and more people are not understanding and using those words every day? What are new words that are being introduced and more popular in the English language of today than they were years ago? 
So that's why there's not one English translation, and it's why we don't just leave an English translation for 30, 50, 100 years and, and not update it, because the English language changes so much. We have to continually be looking at this and figure out what's the right way to understand this passage and communicate it in 2023 and 2024. I, I'm belaboring I'm this point intentionally, because one of the ways that people attack what we believe and attack this book is by saying, well, there's really old documents, and they're all fragments, and you just pick and choose, and there's all these politics involved in picking which words go into translation and all of this sort of stuff. That is, incredibly, uh, that is an incredible oversimplification of the process. It's a very detailed, very difficult process in which all these decisions about what words to end up with are well-reasoned, well-thought-out, collaborative, trying to serve the reader, serve the person, okay? So that's why I am humbly telling you all of that stuff before I tell you I think there's a better word than founder here. <laughs> because I'm not the expert Greek scholar, and I don't want to say your Bible translation is wrong. I think some translations are better than others at different verses. But I think it's really destructive for us and sometimes preachers do this, right? They tell you, well, that word isn't what you think it means because I know the Greek and I can tell you how from the Greek it's actually far more complicated than that. And unfortunately, sometimes it gives average Christians less confidence in reading their scriptures because then you're like, I don't know what this word means until somebody that speaks Greek tells me what it means, okay? So I don't want to overdo that. But I do think that there's a slight translation change that unlocks something really powerful about this translation or about this passage and it's the whole reason I talked about Lewis and Clark the translation for the word founder in verse 10 Jesus is the founder of our salvation it is a possible translation but the the versions of scripture that I think give the, us the better sense of what the Greek is trying to say and what the author of Hebrews is trying to say, don't translate it as founder, but as pioneer. And a pioneer is something a little bit different than a founder. Because a pioneer is somebody that goes somewhere so that you can follow. A founder can found a movement, can establish something, and that's not a, that's not a wrong translation. But the word picture of pioneer, where, where we think of Jesus as not just the one who had the idea of us having a Christian life like we do, but that Jesus actually went there before us so that we could go there after him, that gives us a picture of the Christian life that enables us to, to follow in his footsteps. It's actually a consistent image that helps us understand the whole of the book of Hebrews. Why is Jesus so much better? Because Jesus was there. Jesus was, was there, and then he was there. Jesus was in heaven as God, and came from heaven, still God, became a man so that we could follow the, the, the trail that he blazed, the road that he made. And as we follow him, we become like him. By imitating him as little Christ, that's what Christians are. We seek to live in the way of Jesus. 
And the Jesus, the God who came from heaven to earth, God became man and God became like us so that we, and this is crazy, so that we could become like him. That's where this passage is going. He came where we would go so that we could go where he already was. That's the picture of the pioneer. So is Jesus perfect before he put on human flesh and pioneered the way of salvation for us? Yes, he was. But he wasn't the perfect savior then because he hadn't actually blazed the trail for us to follow. Everything, all the potential of the perfect salvation was in him. All of the power was there. The whole plan was there. Before the foundations of the world, the plan was there. But it hadn't happened yet. So Jesus was not the perfect Savior until he blazed the trail, and the trail wasn't easy. The trail was a trail of suffering. And so Jesus' perfection comes not just by the incarnation where God becomes a man, but also by suffering, where a man who was God suffered everything imaginable that a human could suffer in temptation, in pain, in feeling the rejection of God the Father and feeling separation from God. All of those things were experienced. The weight of sin was placed on him, not because he was a sinner, but because we were and he stood in our place. And so the, the perfect son becomes the perfect savior by blazing a trail for us to follow back to himself. That's the image, that's the picture of the founder or the pioneer of our salvation in verse 10. So that's who we worship. That's who we follow. But verse 11 through 16 then gives us this picture of our radical transformation. The what's in it for me question that we're all too ashamed to ask but we know means something to us. In verse 11, and I'm just going to give you six, six words that bring us through these verses in 11 through 16 and show us the benefits we receive from our trailblazer Savior. We are sanctified. Verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So he who sanctifies is Jesus. Those who are sanctified is us. Probably every one of us has heard the word sanctification before or sanctify, but there's probably a few of us that are, again, ashamed to admit, I only partially know what it means. I sort of have this idea of what sanctification is because I heard it a lot. I know it's a church word, and maybe I can explain it, but let me give it to you simply. The word sanctification simply means to make holy or means to set apart, even simpler. If holiness is a question for you of, well, yeah, I'm going to define one theological complicated word with another theological complicated word that I don't fully understand either, then yeah, say sanctification means make holy. But maybe set apart is better. Set apart. A holy person is set apart, distinct, is different than everyone else. A holy God is set apart. He is different than everything he creates. He's of a different essence. He's different in every way. In, in terms of transcendence and essence and character and perfection and power. God is so different than us, and yet he decides to create us in his image. So the God who is wholly different and set apart from us sets us apart to be like him. Again, this is just a picture 
of God wanting to return us to where he always intended us to be, with him, like him, worshiping him, bringing glory to him, being in relationship with him. And so Jesus is the one who sets us apart. And to be set apart means that you were once defined one way and now you're defined another way. I was thinking about this in a really mundane moment of of going through um, stuff in our house and going through through toys and, and working with Jericho about what stuff needed to put, be put where. And you separate things that way, right? These are your toys that you put away. This is your junk that you throw away. And cleaning is a little bit of both, right? Putting away the things that are of value that you want to retain and getting rid of the things that are not of value that you want to get rid of. And often parents want to get rid of more than kids want to, right? But to be set apart means to be sectioned out for a purpose. And here's the story of you and the story of me. Before Jesus was the perfect Savior, we were set apart for a purpose. And that purpose was condemnation. That was our sins set us apart from God so that we were on our way towards punishment, towards condemnation for the sins that we committed and therefore the punishment that we were on our way to, set apart for, all of that was just and right because of our actions. But to be sanctified means that you are taken from being set apart for one thing to being set apart for something else. What does this mean of your Christian life? Some of us have have talked about before, we've been told sanctification is you're growing in faith. That's how you mature in faith. This is why we use that term that way. You were once set apart to be destroyed. And now you were the thing that was not valuable. You were on your way to destruction. And now in Jesus you have been set apart for holiness, for his eternal kingdom, to reign with him forevermore. And someone that is set apart for this way is now called to live like that. So when you were set apart for destruction, you lived like it, and that was super easy, right? And now that you're set, set apart for sanctification, for holiness, for a life with Jesus that represents him well, it's still super easy to live like that. And it's challenging to live like a holy person that has been declared righteous by God, has been set apart for his glory. So we talk about this whole thing. You know, we're, we're, we're all, we've all failed on our New Year's resolutions because we're two weeks in, and we all had all these big dreams for 2024, and it's already worse than we had hoped it would be. And, and so now it's like, is this year going to be any, any better, any hopeful, and all these things I wanted to work on? Here's the, simple, here's the simple way to look at it. Who are you? And what are you set apart for? If you're set apart for holiness, then, then keep following those steps towards holiness. Keep following those steps. Even when you fall short and even when you you act like a condemned person sometimes, remind yourself from the scriptures, in prayer, in the presence of Jesus, I am not set apart for damnation. I'm not set apart for condemnation. I'm not set apart for the trash heap. But I used to be. And sometimes I live like I am. I'm somebody different. I'm set apart for holiness. I'm set apart for righteousness. I'm set apart to be like Jesus because he became like me. 
And so those times when you think, yeah, I really need to pray, but I'm out of the habit. I really need to, to go and serve somebody, love somebody like Jesus, but I'm really out of habit. Ask yourself who you are and what you're set apart for. Because those who are sanctified are set apart to be like Jesus. And all it takes is one step further into Jesus. And we start looking more and more like him. Follow the trail he's blazed. Number two in verse 12. Brothers, here the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22.22. The end of verse 11 he says, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's talking about us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not ashamed to refer to us as his brothers. Verse 12, saying, and this is the quote from Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of your congregation, I will sing your praise. So this is a quote from a psalm where Jesus is talking to God the Father about us. And Jesus is telling God the Father that he is going to tell us about God the Father. I am going to tell my brothers, those who I will save through my sacrifice, about you, Father, so that they can worship you. They can know you as I know you. Again, Jesus becoming like us so we could be like him. Can you imagine what it must be like to not only be a son and daughter of God, but to be a brother and sister of the Son of God, who is also God? I'm not saying the Trinity is simple. I'm just telling you what the words are saying. So we are sons of God, daughters of God, and we are siblings of God himself as well. We are made in the image of God to rule with him, and ruling with him means that we have this royal authority. That was our passage last week that AJ showed you, that at one point we were lower than the angels because we are more limited than the angels in our status, and yet our true destiny is to reign over the angels, because the angels were not created in the image of God and tasked with ruling over all creation. We were. So we are all co-regents, co-rulers with God the Father and Christ the Son. We are his brothers. We are joint heirs of the kingdom. Those who had no inheritance of their own receive a glorious inheritance of literally all of creation and the entire kingdom of God, because we join in the inheritance of Jesus. And number three, verse 13, tells us a similar image. He's quoting again um, from the Old Testament, Psalm 18.2. Um, but actually, Psalm 18.2 and Isaiah 8.17. He's quoting from two Old Testament passages at once. Psalm, Psalm 18.2 and Isaiah 8.17 and 18 all come up in this passage. Verse 13. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Again, Jesus talking to God the Father. I trust you, Father. I and my brothers, the children you have given me, trust you. This is again, Jesus and God the Father having a conversation about us. Brothers of Jesus, children of God. But the verse goes on to say... That through death, he might, that's Jesus, through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. I'm going to tell you, um, when I first started unpacking this passage, I had to use, like, colors. Like, here's, here's, my, here's my page, you can maybe kind of see it. Because, like, I had to color coordinate 
Like, where is it God the Father that's being talked about? Where is Jesus, and where are we? Because all throughout this passage, there's a lot of pronouns that are all he, and sometimes it's God the Father, and sometimes it's Jesus, and getting, getting your grasp on this is Jesus, what he's doing, this is what God's doing, and this is where we are incorporated into this passage. The entire passage is about all three parties, God, Jesus, and us. And, and you can make the argument that all of Scripture is about God and Jesus. But you know what? And this is something that, that we miss sometimes. This, this book is largely about us, but not centrally about us. So we have to see our role in that. of saying that this is about God and Jesus, who they are and what they're doing for us. Not that we are the subject. Not that we are the point. God is the subject. God is the point. But the implications of who God is and what, what God does are so powerful for us. So, but we have this other party that comes in in verse 14. The one who has the power of death, the devil. And the devil has the power of death. And Jesus has to come here to go to war with the devil to wrestle the power of death out of him. So there, there's another aspect of the incarnation. Incarnation, fancy theological word for Jesus becoming a man, putting on carne, flesh. Jesus goes in flesh for us. And in doing so, he has to be like us in every way so he could tra trailblaze a trail that we could actually then follow, right? Can you imagine if in the journey of the expedition of Lewis and Clark, they were not like us. They were some other being. They were some superhuman being that came upon the Rocky Mountains and said, no big deal. You don't really need a clever way through that. You just run up the mountain, run down the other side. Forget the cold and the ice and the snow. Forget all of that. It would be easy. We don't need a trailblazer that's not like us. So envisioning Jesus as this superhuman who wasn't actually tempted or didn't actually suffer isn't a helpful picture for us. Scripture continually, in shocking ways sometimes, reminds us Jesus is like you, Jesus is like you, Jesus is like you. He experienced real pain. He experienced real trauma. The temptations were real. And he did this, and he suffered this for you. So the incarnation means Jesus has to be like us so that we could follow that path. It also means that Jesus is coming to the devil's home turf. And Jesus was being tempted by the, de by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. The devil had authority over, over the earth in a way that God had allowed. And when Jesus came to the earth, the devil had authority over nations and over kingdoms and over people to deceive them and lead them astray. And so in order for the gospel to go forth among the nations, what Jesus had to do is he had to break that power so that nations, their blinders would come off. People could understand the truth and receive the word of God. So Jesus becomes a man so that men can be joined to God. But Jesus comes to earth to defeat the devil on his home turf, to defeat death for us. So we are children, we are brothers, we are sanctified. Verse 14, we share. Simple truth here. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, I have to tell my children occasionally, you're probably not going to be 
a superstar athlete. You have the wrong genes for that. My bad. Like, it, it, you're, you're, you're probably, you, you, every child has a potential, maybe, to be a little bit better of an athlete than a parent, but it's not probably going to be a night and day kind of a thing where somebody that's really slow is suddenly going to have a kid that's really fast, and you don't see a lot of five, seven people out there having six, seven children. It's just the way, it's just the way it works, right? That there is a connection between flesh and blood in the family. And what this passage is saying in a really radical way is that Jesus and us share in the same flesh and blood limitations. We always have. Jesus willingly chose to take on that flesh and blood and take on those limitations. And so, so in the same way that we're brothers and we're children, we share in the limits of humanity like us. Again, he had to be made like us in, in our humanity so that we could be made like him in his holiness. Humans can't be holy and set apart unless there's a trailblazer. Verse 15, our fifth aspect of our transformation in this passage, we are delivered. We were in prison and now we're free. Verse 15 says, Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Think about the word picture here. Incarcerated. Subjected into slavery. Living in fear and darkness. And think about this, this incredible rescue of someone who was once a slave and constantly lived in fear and is rescued by the strongest power the world has ever known and not just temporarily freed from slavery but actually brought from one location to a different location where the fear of slavery should never come back again. That's the power, the incredible nature of our deliverance. Colossians 1 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness where Satan has power and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So think about those that have been in a, in a prison camp, in a war-torn land and think about what it would be like to be in these terrible circumstances and actually have somebody show up and say, forget the paperwork, forget the process, I'm picking you up, I'm taking you out of this place, and I'm putting you into this place of total freedom, of incredible wealth, of incredible personal autonomy. I'm taking you out of slavery and into royalty, out of the, the depths of darkness and into the throne room. It's really that simple and that complex, and it's that beautiful. That Jesus took you from such a place where you had no hope. And he puts you in a place where you need have no fear. From hopelessness to fearlessness. And don't get me wrong, I know we still have our fears and we have our anxieties. But I, I state this point to remind you that some of those aren't real. That somebody who's been transferred out of the greatest darkness possible, somebody who's been freed from this incredible slavery, and brought into the throne room of the Almighty God, the creator of the ends of the earth, who reigns over everything that we see and, and even more that we don't see. He's called you his son. He's, he's guaranteed you a place in his throne room for all eternity. And what are we so anxious about that will happen tomorrow? What are we so afraid of in our culture, in our society of our day? 
We have been delivered. We're free. Finally, verse 16. Angels, they come up all the time in this book. Verse 16. Surely, Jesus didn't come to help the angels. He came to help us. Y'all, angels are cool. I, I think thinking about angels, it's fascinating. I don't fully understand it either. I think it's cool to think about. Jesus wasn't worried about the salvation of angels. He didn't put on human flesh to save angels. Because angels weren't created in his image. He didn't dearly love angels the way he dearly loves you. He suffered not for angels. He suffered for you. And that help is real. And it's still there. So now verse 17 and 18. Our perfect high priest. Therefore, so we've seen these six benefits that that we've received here. Quickly, sanctified, verse 11. Brothers, verse 12. Children, verse 13. Share, verse 14. Delivered, verse 15. And helped in verse 16. Therefore, verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He became himself, or because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to again help those who are being tempted. As the perfect high priest, Jesus is merciful. He is faithful. He is propitiatory. And he has been tempted. He is merciful in the way that the sacrificial system of the old covenant and the renewal of the new covenant in a new high priest was always about bringing mercy to the sinner. And so the mercy seat of the old covenant law has been replaced by the person of Jesus and he is perfectly merciful in a way that the old covenant system of of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy could never fully atone for sin, and Jesus is beyond merciful. Jesus is faithful in a way a human high priest never could have been unless he was like Jesus, both man and God. So many high priests failed the nation. Jesus will never fail the new covenant people of God. He is perfect and he is faithful because he doesn't just stand between God and the people as an advocate for their sins. He stands with the people, and with God. He is one of the people, and he is one with God. In an intercessory way, as a go-between, that, that a human high priest could never have accomplished. He makes propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a way of communicating the full atonement, the covering, the removal of our sin where God himself sends himself to save us from the wrath he himself will pour out. God himself sends himself to save us from himself. Because God's wrath must punish sin. And you were set apart for condemnation. And Jesus has transferred you and set you apart now for holiness. And that's what propitiation is. Substitution. Jesus was punished. Jesus was punished by God the Father so that you would not be. And that is love by both parties. Jesus knew what it was going to be like. God knew what it was going to be like. And they did it for us. And in verse 18, because Jesus himself has suffered, he can help you. He was tempted, so you are tempted. And he understands when you're tempted. And he makes a way out 
so that you can bear with the temptation. And so, simply, we're going to wrap this up in just a really simple application. Two points. Number one, remember him. Remember Jesus. Look at, look at all he is and all he's done. The perfect son became the perfect savior to, and then became the perfect high priest so that we could be radically transformed in these six powerful ways we've talked about. Remember him. And number two, act like it means something. Number two, live like he did something. Live in such a way that there is actually something that he accomplished for us to live in response. We remember Jesus and we live like he did something. Let me ask you a question. Does the coming, dying, rising of Jesus, the Son of God, have anything to do with the way you live your life today and tomorrow? Because unfortunately for many of us, and, I, and I've been there too, unfortunately for many of us, I think there are moments in time, there are conversations, there are even days, there are whole periods of time where our behavior would not be affected if we knew that Jesus had come and lived and died or if we didn't. We'd probably do the same things no matter what the state was. But what this passage is pushing us towards, look at all this beauty about who he is. See him in all that he is. See him in all the implications it has for you. You've been delivered from slavery. You've been set apart, moved from a place of condemnation to a place of holiness. Does it mean anything? This great God in heaven has come down and lived a life and suffered and gone through this torment and pain and temptation so that you would know there's a way through the pain. When you experience pain, it's not the end. God hasn't lost control. God doesn't hate you. There's a way through the pain because the one we follow through that difficult trail experienced pain and suffering too. He, he experienced temptation. He experienced fear. He experienced all of these things that we deal with. And you look at him in the garden and he says, if, if there's any other way, and he doesn't say that if he's just God and not man. He says that because he's fully human too. And he knows what it's going to be like. He knows what suffering is. Y'all, it's okay that you don't like to suffer. Jesus didn't either. But Jesus did for you. And he calls us now to follow him on that road that will involve some suffering. When you are facing a sin, do you live as if you've been set apart, transferred? Do you live as if you're a child? Do you live as if he came to help you? Let me get real. Let's say you're prone to anger and you have an angry response to somebody. Maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a coworker, a customer, whatever. And you have this angry response. Do you live as someone who is set apart for condemnation or someone who's set apart for holiness? It's a simple application. Just remember who you are. Remember what Jesus says about you and what Jesus did for you in that moment. And remember that you do have the power. You have been redeemed from slavery. You do have the power to do something different. What about you're struggling and you're, you feel overcome in, this, in these temptations of, of lust? What if you have this addiction to pornography, this addiction to sexual sin, and you just keep going back to that well and you know it makes you feel terrible and you know you want your way out? When you go there, do you live as if you're still under bondage and slavery? Or do you live as if the most powerful being in the universe, the creator of it all, actually 
picked you up and transferred you out of that slavery and put you in the throne room? Do you live set apart for condemnation or set apart for holiness? Do you live in the, in the slavery encampment or do you live in the throne room? What about when you're experiencing fear and anxiety? Do you live as if you're still living in the dark? Or do you live as if your Father has shown light and shown you that He can control and He can, he can protect you through it all and your end is guaranteed? Tomorrow what happens, we don't know. But we know what happens in all eternity. How are you living in your fear? What about as simple as your loneliness and despair? Because your life is full of pain and suffering. And your life has left you in a place where you just don't know what to do and the sadness overcomes and the loneliness and despair, sometimes they just grip you. Do you live like you're alone in the dark? Or do you live like God himself sent himself to help you? And that he's there still waiting to help you. God sent Jesus and Jesus sent the Spirit. It may feel like, man, this would be so great if I could just see, feel, or touch him. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. It's better you don't see, feel, or touch me. It's better that the Holy Spirit see, feel, and touch you. We don't need a physical Jesus as much as we need the Holy Spirit. I don't understand it either. That's what Jesus said, though. That in this stage of human history, in this stage of, of our life, following Jesus through that trail of the journey of the Christian life, we need the presence of the Spirit in us more than we need Jesus next to us. That the Spirit in all of us simultaneously strengthens us more than having one Jesus that could only be next to a couple of us at a time. And so then we become the Jesus presence. We become God's presence as the Holy Spirit fills us and we walk alongside each other. We are how we keep from being alone. As brothers and sisters band together. So I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're not done worshiping. We're not done singing. And I want you to sing as they lead us. But I also want you to reflect. Are you living today like Jesus actually made a way? Mayor prayed for us God's prophecy that he is doing a new thing and he will make a way in the wilderness. He will make a stream in the desert. He's blazed that trail through the wilderness for you. And maybe you're, you're here today and it's sort of coming in one ear out the other because you recognize there's something off in you. Maybe you're not quite there and you really need salvation in Jesus and you know you don't have it after hearing all this thing. I, I don't live like that because I don't feel like that and I know I'm not like that. Come and find me. During the song, come and find me. I'm right up here. And let's pray together. And let's follow that next step of the trail to the person of Jesus. But if you're just looking to go deeper in Jesus, come to the altar and let somebody come and pray with you. Let's take one more step in obedience. One more step along the trail to be like Jesus. Let's stand. We'll sing together.